Chapter 31 of The Pretty Lady by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 31. Romance. At two periods of the day, Marta, with great effort and for professional purposes, achieved some degree of personal tidiness. The first period began about four o'clock in the afternoon. By six o'clock or six-thirty she had slipped back into the sloven. The second period began at about ten o'clock at night. It was more brilliant while it lasted, but owing to the accentuation of Marta's characteristics by fatigue, it seldom lasted more than an hour. When Marta opened the door to G.J., she was at her proudest, intensely conscious of being clean and neat, and unwilling to stand any nonsense from anybody. Of course she was polite to G.J. as the chief friend of the establishment and a giver of good tips, but she deprecated calls by gentlemen in the evening, for, unless they were made by appointment, the risk of complications at once arose. The mention of an air raid rendered her definitely inimical. Formerly, Marta had been more than average nervous in air raids, but she had grown used to them and now defied them. As she kept all windows closed on principle, she heard less of raids than some people. G.J. did not explain the circumstances. He simply asked if Madame had returned. No, Madame had not returned. True, Marta had not been unaware of guns and things, but there was no need to worry. Madame must have arrived at the theatre long before the guns started. Marta really could not be bothered with these unnecessary apprehensions. She had her duties to attend to like other folks, and they were heavy, and she washed her hands of air raids. She accepted no responsibility for them. For her, within the flat, they did not exist, and the whole German war machine was thereby foiled. G.J. was on the point of a full explanation, but he checked himself. A recital of the circumstances would not immediately help, and it might hinder. Concealing his astonishment at the excesses of which unimaginative stolidity is capable, even in an Italian, he turned down the stairs again. He stopped in the middle of the stairs, because he did not know what he was going to do, and he seemed to lack force for decisions. No harm could have happened to Christine. She had run off, that was certain. And yet, had he not often heard of the impish tricks of explosions, of one person being taken and another left? Was it not possible that Christine had been blown to the other end of the street and was now lying there? No. Either she was on her way home, or automatically she had scurried to the theatre, which was close to St. Martin Street, and been too fearful to venture forth again. Perhaps she was looking somewhere for him. Yet she might be dead. In any case, what could he do? Ring up the police? It was too soon. He decided that he would wait in Cork Street for half an hour. This plan appealed to him for the mere reason that it was negative. As he opened the front door, he saw a taxi standing outside. The taxi man had taken one of the lamps from its bracket and was looking into the interior of the cab, which was ornate with toy curtains and artificial flowers, to indicate to the world that he was an owner-driver and understood life. Hearing the noise of the door, he turned his head, he was wearing a bowler hat and a smart white muffler, and said to G.J., with self-respecting respect for a gentleman, "'This is number 170, isn't it, sir?' "'Yes.' The taxi-man jerked his head to draw G.J.'s attention to the interior of the vehicle. Christine was half on the seat and half on the floor, unconscious with shut eyes. Instantly G.J. was conscious of making a complete recovery from all the effects, physical and moral, of the air raid. Just help me to get you out, will you? he said in a casual tone, and I'll carry her upstairs. Where did you pick the lady up? 
Strand, sir, near the opposite Romano's. The dickens you did. Shot from air raid, I suppose, sir? Probably. She did seem a little upset when she hailed me, or I shouldn't have taken her. I was off home, and I only took her to oblige. The taxi-man ran quickly round to the other side of the cab, and entered it by the off-door, behind Christine. Together the men lifted her up. I can manage her, said G.J. calmly. Excuse me, sir, you'll have to get hold of her lower down, so as her waist will be nearly as high as your shoulder. Your brother's a farmer. Right, said G.J. By the way, what's the fare? Holding Christine across his shoulder with the right arm, he unbuttoned his overcoat with his left hand and took out change from his trouser pocket for the driver. You might pull the door to after me, he said in response to the driver's expression of thanks. Certainly, sir. The door banged. He was alone with Christine on the long, dark, inclement stairs. He felt the contours of her body through her clothes. She was limp, helpless. She was a featherweight. She was nothing at all, inexpressibly girlish, pathetic, dear. Never had G.J. felt as he felt then. He mounted the stairs rather quickly with firm, disdaining steps, and, despite his being a little out of breath, he had a tremendous triumph over the stolidity of Marta when she answered his ring. Marta screamed, and in the scream readjusted her views concerning air raids. It's queer this swoon lasting such a long time, he reflected, when Christine had been deposited on the sofa in the sitting-room, and the common remedies and tricks tried without result, and Marta had gone to the kitchen to make hot water hotter. He had established absolute empire over Marta. He had insisted on Marta not being silly, and yet, though he had already been silly himself in his absurd speculations as to the possibility of Christine's death, he was now in danger of being silly again. Did ordinary swoons ever continue as this one was continuing? Would Christine ever come out of it? He stood with his back to the fireplace, and her head and shoulders were right under him, so that he looked almost perpendicularly down upon them. Her face was as pale as ivory. Every drop of blood seemed to have left it. The same with her neck and bosom. Her limbs had dropped anyhow, in disarray. Her fur jacket was untidily cast over her black muslin dress. But her waved hair, fresh from the weekly visit of the professional coiffeur, remained in the most perfect order. G.J. looked round the room. It was getting very shabby. Its pale, enamelled shabbiness and the tawdry ugliness of nearly every object in it had never repelled and saddened him as they did then. The sole agreeable item was a large photograph of the mistress in a rich silver frame which she had given her. She would not let him buy knick-knacks or draperies for her drawing-room. She preferred other presents. And now that she lay in the room, but with no power to animate it, he knew what the room really looked like. It looked like a dentist's waiting-room, except that no dentist would expose copies of La Vie Parisienne to the view of clients. It had no more individuality than a dentist's waiting-room. Indeed, it was a dentist's waiting-room. He remembered that he had had similar ideas about the room at the beginning of his acquaintance with Christine, but he had partially forgotten them, and, moreover, they had not by any means been so clear and desolating as in that moment. He looked from the photograph to her face. The face was like the photograph, but in the swoon its wistfulness became unbearable, and it was so young. What was she? Twenty-seven? She could not be twenty-eight. No age. A girl. And talk about experience. She had had scarcely any experience, save one kind of experience. The monotony and narrowness of her life was terrifying to him. 
He had fifty interests, but she had only one. All her days were alike. She had no change and no holiday, no past and no future, no family, no intimate friends, unless Martha was an intimate friend, no horizons, no prospects. She witnessed life in London through the distorting, mystifying veil of a foreign language imperfectly understood. She was the most solitary girl in London, or she would have been, were there not a hundred thousand or so others in nearly the same case. Stay, once she had delicately allowed him to divine that she had been to Bournemouth with a gentleman for a weekend. He could recall nothing else. Nightly, or almost nightly, she listened to the same insufferably tedious jokes in the same insufferably tedious review. But the authorities were soon going to deprive her of the opportunity of doing that, and then she would cease to receive even the education that reviews can furnish, and in her mind no images would survive but images connected with the material arts of love. For, after all, what have they truly in common, he and she, but a periodical transient excitation? When next he looked at her, her eyes were wide open and a flush was coming, as imperceptibly as the dawn, into her cheeks. He took her hands again and rubbed them. Marta returned, and Christine drank. She gazed in weak silence, first at Marta and then at G.J. After a few moments, no one spoke. Marta took off Christine's boots and rubbed her stockinged feet, and then kissed them violently. Madame shall go to bed. I am better. Marta left the room, seeming resentful. "'What has passed?' Christine murmured, without smiling. "'A faint in the taxi, my poor child. That was all,' said G.J. calmly. "'But how is it that I find myself here?' "'I carried thee upstairs in my arms.' "'Thou?' "'Why not?' He spoke lightly, with careful negligence. "'It appears that thou wast in the Strand.' "'Was I? I lost thee. Something tore thee from me. I ran.' I ran till I could not run. I was sure that never more should I see thee alive. Oh, my Gilbert, what terrible moments! What a catastrophe! Never shall I forget those moments. G.J. said with bland supremacy, But it is necessary that thou shouldst forget them. Master thyself. Thou knowest now what it is, an air raid. It was an ordinary air raid. There have been many like it. There will be many more. For once we were in the middle of a raid, by chance. But we are safe, that is enough. But the deaths, he shook his head. But there must have been many deaths. I do not know. There would have been deaths, they usually are. He shrugged his shoulders. Christine sat up and gave a little screech. Ah! she burst out, her features suddenly transformed by enraged protest. Why will thou act like cold man? He was amazed at the sudden nervous strength she showed. But, my little one, she cried, Why wilt thou act thy cold man? I shall become mad in this sacred England. I shall become totally mad. You are all the same, all, all men and women. You are marvels. Let it be so, but you are not human. Do you then wish to be taken for telegraph poles? Always you are pretending something, pretending that you have no sentiments, and you are soaked in sentimentality. But no, you will not show it. You will not applaud your soldiers in the streets. You will not salute your flag. You will not salute even a corpse. You have only one phrase. It is nothing. If you win a battle, it is nothing. If you lose one, it is nothing. If you nearly killed at an air raid, it is nothing. And if you were killed outright and could yet speak, you would say with your eternal sneer, it is nothing. You other men, you make love with the air of turning on a tap. As for your women, God knows. 
but I have a horror of English women. Prudes, but wantons. Can I not guess? Always hypocrites, always holding themselves in. My God, that pinched smile. And your women of the world especially. Have they a natural gesture? Yet does not everyone know that they are rotten with vice and perversity? And your actresses, and they talk of us. Ah, well, for me I can say that I earn my living honestly, every sou of it. All that I receive, I give. And they would throw me onto the pavement to starve me whose function in society. She collapsed in sobs, and with averted face held out her arms in appeal. G.J., at once admiring and stricken with compassion, bent and clasped her neck, and kissed her, and kept his mouth on hers. Her tears dropped freely on his cheeks. Her sobs shook both of them. Gradually the sobs decreased in violence and frequency. In an infant's broken voice she murmured into his mouth, My wolf, is it true that thou didst carry me here in thy arms? I am so proud. He was not in the slightest degree irritated or grieved by her tirade. But the childlike changefulness and facility of her emotions touched him. He savoured her youth, and himself felt curiously young. It was the fact that within the last year he had grown younger. He thought of great intellectuals, artists, men of action, princes, kings, historical figures, in whom courtesans had inspired immortal passion. He thought of the illustrious courtesans who had made themselves heroic in legend, women whose loves were countless and often venal, and yet whose renown had come down to posterity as gloriously as that of supreme poets. He thought of lifelong passionate attachments, which to the world were inexplicable, and which the world never tired of leniently discussing. He overheard people saying, Yes, picked her up somewhere in a promenade. She worships him, and he adores her. Don't know where he hides her. You see them about together sometimes, at concerts, for instance. Mysterious-looking creature she is. Plays the part very well, too. Strange affair, but of course there's no accounting for these things. The role attracted him, and there could be no doubt that she did worship him utterly. He did not analyse his feelings for her, perhaps could not. She satisfied something in him that was profound. She never offended his sensibilities, nor wearied him. Her manners were excellent, her gestures full of grace and modesty, her temperament extreme. A unique combination. And if the tie between them was not real and secure, why should he have yearned for her company that night after the scenes with Conception and Queen? Those women challenged him, discomposed him, fretted him, fought him, left his nerves raw. She soothed. Why should he not, in the French phrase, put her among her own furniture? In a proper artistic environment, an environment created by himself, of taste and moderate luxury, she would be exquisite. She would blossom. And she would blossom for him alone. She would live for his footstep on her threshold, and when he was not there, she would dream amid cushions like a cat. In the right environment, she would become another being, that was to say the same being, but orchidized. And when he was old, when he was sixty-five, she would still be young, still be under forty and seductive. And the publishing of his last will and testament, under which she inherited all, would render her famous throughout all the West End, and the word romance would spring to every lip. He searched in his mind for the location of suitable flats. "'Is it true that thou didst carry me in thine arms?' repeated Christine. He murmured into her mouth. "'Is it true? Can she doubt?' The proof, then. And he picked her up as though she had been a doll, and carried her into the bedroom. 
As she lay on the bed, she raised her arm and looked at the broken wristwatch and sighed. My mascot! It is not a blague, my mascot! Shortly afterwards she began to cry again, at first gently, then sobs supervened. She must sleep, he said firmly. She shook her head. I cannot have been too upset. It is impossible that I should sleep. She must. Go and buy me a drug. If I go and buy her a drug, will she undress and get into bed while I am away? She nodded. Calling Marta and taking the latch key of the street door, he went to his chemist's in Dover Street and bought some potassium bromide and sal volatile. When he came back, Marta whispered to him, She sleeps. She has told me everything as I undressed her. The poor child! Chapter 32 Mrs. Braiding G.J. went home at once, partly so that Christine should not be disturbed, partly because he desired solitude in order to examine and compose his mind. Mrs. Braiding had left an agreeably modest fire, fit for cold April, in the drawing-room. He just sat down in front of it and was tranquillising himself in the familiar, harmonious beauty of the apartment, which, however, did seem rather insipid after the decorative excesses of Queen's room, when he heard footsteps on the little stairway from the upper floor. Mrs. Braiding entered the drawing-room. This was a Mrs. Braiding very different from the Mrs. Braiding of 1914, a shameless creature of more rounded contours than of old, and not quite so spick and span as of old. She was carrying in her arms that which before the war she could not have conceived herself as carrying. The being was invisible in wraps, but it was there, and she seemed to have no shame for it, seemed indeed to be proud of it and defiant about it. Braiding's military career had been full of surprises. He had expected within a few months of joining the colours to be dashing gloriously and homicidally at panic-stricken Germans across the plains of Flanders, to be, in fact, saving the empire at the muzzle of rifle and the point of bayonet. In truth, he had found that for interminable, innumerable weeks his job was to save the empire by cleaning harness on the east coast of England, for under advice he had transferred to the artillery. Later, when his true qualifications were discovered, he had to save the empire by polishing the buttons and serving the morning tea and buying the cigarettes of a major who in 1914 had been a lawyer by profession and a soldier only for fun. The major talked too much and to the wrong people. He became lyric concerning the talents of braiding to a dandiacal divisional general at Colchester, and soon, by the actuating of mysterious forces and the filling up of many army forms, Braiding was removed to Colchester, and had to save the Empire by valeting the Divisional General. Foiled in one direction, Braiding advanced in another. By tradition, when a valet marries a lady's maid, the effect on the birth-rate is naught, and it is certain that, but for the war, Braiding would not have permitted himself to act as he did. The Empire, however, needed citizens. The first rumour that Braiding had done what in him lay to meet the need spread through the kitchens of the Albany like a new gospel, incredible and stupefying, but which imposed itself. The Albany was never the same again. All the kitchens were agreed that Mr. Hope would soon be stranded. The spectacle of Mrs. Braiding as she slipped out of a morning past the porter's lodge mesmerised beholders. At last, when things had reached the limit, Mrs. Braiding slipped out and did not come back. Meanwhile, a much younger sister of hers had been introduced into the flat. But when Mrs. Braiding went, the Virgin went also. 
the flat was more or less closed, and Mr. Hope had slept at his club for weeks. At length the flat was reopened, but whereas three had left it, four returned. That a bachelor of Mr. Hope's fastidiousness should tolerate in his home a woman with a tiny baby was remarkable. It was as astounding, perhaps, as any phenomenon of the war, and a sublime proof that Mr. Hope realised that the Empire was fighting for its life. It arose from the fact that both G.J. and Brading were men of considerable sagacity. Brading had issued an order, after seeing G.J., that his wife should not leave G.J.'s service. And Mrs. Brading, too, had her sense of duty. She was very proud of G.J.'s war work, and would have thought it disloyal to leave him in the lurch, and so possibly prejudice the war work, especially as she was convinced that he would never get anybody else comparable to herself. At first she had been a little apologetic and diffident about her offspring, but soon the man-child had established an important position in the flat, and though he was generally invisible, his individuality pervaded the whole place. G.J. had easily got accustomed to the new inhabitant. He tolerated and then liked the babe. He had never nursed it, for such an act would have been excessive, but he had once stuck his finger in its mouth, and he had given it a perambulator that folded up. He did venture secretly to hope that Brading would not imagine it to be his duty to provide further for the needs of the Empire. That Mrs. Brading had grown rather shameless in motherhood was shown by her quite casual demeanour as she now came into the drawing-room with the baby, for this was the first time she had ever come to the drawing-room with the baby, knowing her august master to be there. "'Mrs. Brading,' said G.J., "'that child ought to be asleep.' "'He is asleep, sir,' said the woman, glancing into the mysteries of the immortal package. "'But Maria hasn't been able to get back yet because of the raid, and I didn't want to leave him upstairs alone with the cat. He slept all through the raid.' "'It seems some of you have made the cellar quite comfortable.' "'Oh, yes, sir, particularly now with the oil stove and the carpet. Perhaps one night you'll come down, sir.' "'I may have to.' I shouldn't have been much surprised to find some damage here tonight. They've been very close, you know, near Leicester Square. He could not be troubled to say more than that. Have they really, sir? It's just like them, said Mrs. Brading. And then she continued in exactly the same tone. Lady Queenie Paul has just been telephoning from Letchford House, sir. She still, despite her marvellous experiences, impishly loved to make extraordinary announcements as if they were nothing at all and she felt an uplifting satisfaction in having talked to Lady Queenie Paul herself on the telephone. "'What does she want?' G.J. asked impatiently, and not at all in a voice proper for the mention of a Lady Queenie to a Mrs. Brading. He was annoyed. He resented any disturbance of the repose which he so acutely needed. Mrs. Brading showed that she was a little shocked. The old harassed look of bearing up against complex anxieties came into her face. Her ladyship wished to speak to you, sir, on a matter of importance. I didn't know where you were, sir. That last phrase was always used by Mrs. Brading when she wished to imply that she could guess where G.J. had been. He did not suppose that she was acquainted with the circumstances of his amour, but he had a suspicion amounting to conviction that she had conjectured it, as men of science from certain derangements in their calculations will conjecture the existence of a star that no telescope has revealed. Well, better leave Lady Queenie alone for tonight. I promised her ladyship that I would ring her up again in any case in a quarter of an hour. That was approximately ten minutes ago. He could not say, Be hanged to your promises. Reluctantly he went to the telephone himself, and learned from Lady Queenie 
who always knew everything, that the raiders were expected to return in about half an hour, and that she and Concepcion desired his presence at Letchford House. He replied coldly that he was too tired to come, and was indeed practically in bed. "'But you must come. Don't you understand we want you?' said Lady Queenie, autocratically, adding, "'And don't forget that business about the hospitals. We didn't attend to it this afternoon, you know.' He said to himself, "'And whose fault was that?' and went off angrily, wondering what mysterious power of convention it was that compelled him to respond to the whim of a girl whom he scarcely even respected. End of chapter 32